Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Russell Hargrave. We are reporters at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. In this episode, we'll be hearing from the Charity Finance Group about attitudes towards financial reserves and to get some advice on why they matter, how big they need to be and things to consider when they start to dwindle. And later in our new feature, Charity Changed My Life, we will be hearing about the positive impact that the information and services provided by Movember has had on one person's life. But first, Russ, I feel like this episode is Christmas come early, very early for you. Would you care to tell us why? I got a message from Lucinda, I think just before Christmas, saying, oh, should we talk about reserves in the podcast in the future? And as you say, it's absolute catnip, the chance to talk about sort of financial savings, where the finances of charities are at, how they can cope with finances, good and bad, is exactly what I want to talk about all day and all night. So um, very quickly, would it be helpful if I just ran through why I think this is a particularly good time to be talking about this. Please do. Let's start with Kids Company. The Kids Company scandal, which is one of the most famous charity stories of recent years, is essentially a story about reserves and financial reserves. It was a charity that hardly ever had any cash held back. They spent more than they earned year in, year out, despite people warning them not to. And that's why they collapsed so quickly, almost overnight. And that shows the risk for charities that If you get yourself in a position where you haven't set money back, when things go wrong, it can fall apart in a real hurry. But then there's a real mixed picture across the board at the moment. And Reads of Third Sector's website will have looked at stories that we've done recently. Some charities have spent out of their reserves in a very big way in the last year to try and cope with COVID. Not surprising, right? It's what they're for. Absolutely not. And to some extent, that is exactly charities doing what they should do. But then you look at some places where even that hasn't quite worked. So our colleague Stephen Downs wrote a piece about historic royal palaces recently, the charity that looks after all those kind of big stately homes and palaces around the country. Mm. They spent 20 million quid out of their reserves to try and make sure they kept afloat during COVID. And their income has come down very, very sharply. And they're really struggling now to sort of make ends meet. And there's a real problem there that they're confronting. Some charities are protecting their reserves against the demands that staff are making for higher pay. It's a time of inflation. It was about 10, 11%. And so people were seeing their wage packets earn less and less. Mm. And they went to the charity bosses and said, can we have more money? And if yeah. you look at charities like Shelter, a whole bunch of staff are out on strike at the moment saying, we've got a bunch of money in reserve. Why isn't that being used to help give us a cost of living pay rise? And the trustees so far are resisting taking that money out of the reserves, largely because that money is earmarked for something else, long-term plans for helping deal with homelessness in the future. And the charity might think, we want to look after our staff, but we also have a five-year, 10-year, 50-year plan for looking after one of society's biggest problems. So that's also happening in the reserve space. And finally, some charities we've written about are now using their reserves to wind down, which is the saddest thing that charities can have to do. But the charity Asylum and Immigration Support Team, who are based in Birmingham, also on strike. A couple of their members of staff went out on strike before Christmas because the charity's trustees have decided what they want to do because of problems financially with the charities, use their reserves, very slowly wind the charity down, find other places that will run their services, and then that charity will cease to exist sometime in 2023. So again, another way of looking at reserves, it's there to fall back on when the worst happens so that the people who rely on the charity don't use the services just because the charity isn't there anymore. So a bit of a whistle-stop to of recent news things that have interested me, but I think there's never a bad time to talk about financial reserves. You know that, Lucinda, <laughs> but this is absolutely key. Thank you, Russ, for setting the scene and painting that backdrop for our main discussion this week. 
joining us today are two experts from the Charity Finance Group, a charity in its own right that provides advice to help others develop their financial knowledge and skills and seeks to influence policymakers. Karen Bradshaw, OBE, is the chief executive, a self-professed social CEO and a trained barrister with expertise across charity regulation, policy, member support and professional ethics. Hello, Karen. Hello there. And joining us here in the studio is Pesh Framji, a special advisor to the Charity Finance Group, who is also a chartered accountant and has a long history in the sector. Uh, Pesh previously was at the accountancy group Crow and before that head of non-profits at Deloitte. Hello, Pesh. Hello. And perhaps we can kick off with you, Karen. You joined us on the podcast back in August last year when we talked about what it would be like for charities with their reserves coming out of the impact of the pandemic. What's changed between now and then? Yeah, absolutely. If you cast your mind back to the previous contribution, when we were talking about going into the pandemic, we were really thinking about the fact that charities had only just really as a collective recovered from the banking crash over a decade earlier. The the reserves figures had just about got back to where they had been pre-banking crash. So if you think of us coming into now, a cost of living crisis, an energy cost crisis, Uh, costs across the board, inflation peaking. They're doing that on the back of reserves that have taken, for for many charities, a beating over the previous period of time where we've been looking at COVID. Um, I think I called it last time strategically damaging impact. And COVID was strategically damaging. And what I meant by that was the things that you'd put the money aside for were not the things you spent it on during COVID. You spent your money in covid in bridging gaps and surviving and transforming to try and pivot your work to needing perhaps to be delivering online. So coming into this current period of time where we're looking at a lot of uncertainty, we're seeing organisations facing into it in quite a challenged position. And that goes for those that look like they seemingly have lots of reserves too. Some charities will have, have liquidated assets in order to try and compensate for anticipated loss of fundraising income, for example, and that then hasn't happened, or they've stopped funding something because everything has pivoted towards dealing with COVID, and that now has backed up. So that might seem on the face of it to be a seemingly high level of reserves or a seemingly low level of reserves. So it's quite a different and volatile picture. And I think the final thing I'd say here is that For many of those organisations, they won't have done the exercise of standing back and saying, what reserves do we now need in this new operating environment? And therefore, their risk profile and their calculation, their reserves range will be based on what happened pre-pandemic. And they're now in a very different operating environment. And Pesh, in the face of this uncertainty and volatility, why do reserves matter? Well, if you think about reserves as almost sort of a buffer to manage uncertainty, or if a charity was always sure its income was always going to match its expenditure, it wouldn't need any reserves at all. But of course, income changes, expenditure changes, you have fixed income with increasing expenditure, or alternatively, you have decreasing income. And so there's always this little gap. And being able to manage that gap effectively is what you need your reserves for. You know, I wrote an article some years ago saying, um, Uh, save it for a rainy day. Well, it's pouring now and (laughs) people need to think about whether they're going to go out with their umbrella or not. And do you mind, Pesh, giving our listeners a bit of a crash course in all those different terms that we do here around reserves? So, for example, we know that we have free reserves, we have 
unrestricted and restricted reserves. We have some designated money for reserves, which can be touched for some things and not the others. Could you just go through really simply what, what charities will have to make decisions about on that? Yeah. So very simply, there's some guidance from the Charity Commission, which sometimes people find confusing. So free reserves are sort of uh, defined as almost being uh, the reserves which are not designated for a particular purpose or not restricted for a particular purpose. But actually, it's not as simple as that. It needs to be much more nuanced because you might have some reserves which you've designated for a particular purpose, but you can actually use for an alternative purpose. You can undesignate them and you could use them uh, maybe because you need to do something uh, urgently. Also, some restrictions are not as restricted as they might sound. So I know when I was um, acting as the finance director of Save the Children UK, we had a big fund called Famine in Africa, and that was put aside as a restricted fund. But so much of our expenditure was actually going into Africa and into famine work that to all intents and purposes, we could use that money as an unrestricted because it covered such a large proportion of our work. So actually understanding that and saying that there are no real sort of stereotype solutions to this is each charity will have to look at it and say, what makes sense for us? And Karen, going back to you, from your position at the Charity Finance Group, giving advice to other charities, how do you see voluntary organisations coping at the moment? And how big is the demand for your advice and services at the moment? Well, I think reserves is rapidly climbing the ladder in terms of the top priority or top concern that people are grappling with at the moment and and it covers a number of different aspects you've got the issues around communication so the things that we touched on when we started this around seemingly high or seemingly low reserves when you're in an environment of great volatility and there is an awful lot of pressure employees are demanding of us stakeholders are demanding of us funders are demanding of us the government is demanding of us and in that context how we communicate what our reserves position is and what we think we need when we are standing, if you like, on a proverbial wobble board and everything is, is constantly moving is a really difficult challenge. So we've had a lot of, of, of charities asking us, well, how do, how do we deal with this? How do we communicate this in a way that doesn't expose us to criticism by any of those stakeholders and doesn't also commit us to things that we can't realistically service in the future? So there's a big piece around communication of reserves that I think is is challenging charities. Then I think there's a, a big piece of charities worrying about the how do they actually strike that balance between those competing priorities in a, in a really uncertain world. I mean, we've been talking about unprecedented uncertainty now for what feels like, you know, half a decade. And it feels like we are just going to be living in really uncertain times for quite an extended period of time. So trying to balance what your risks are right now and in future and then deal with all of those competing priorities and also then try and make as much of the money that you've got available to deal with your beneficiaries as you possibly can, whilst also then keeping back enough money to be able to deal with your future beneficiaries is a really difficult thing for trustees and for executives to work together on. And I think that's creating a great deal of worry for organisations. And if you then throw in things like the energy costs, when I said earlier about the strategically damaging impact of covid if you now think about funds that perhaps have been designated to move you towards net zero, for example, 
in the face of a significant spike in energy costs, those funds may now be just literally keeping the lights on. And therefore, your strategy towards some of these really profoundly important aspects of your charity's organisation are being challenged in ways that you can't quite see where the next way of, of us being able to lean back into those challenges and issues comes from. And then the final one that I think people are starting to really worry about is if you are under your designated amount of reserves, your reserves range, how on earth in this environment do you even start to think about rebuilding it? And do you prioritise the perception of rebuilding your reserves or trying to get those reserves back into what seems like a healthy position over things like amending your services, continuing to provide support in an environment of rising demand and potentially threatened income? And do you think that funders get it? The reason I ask that is because you know, if you've got your direct debits coming in from public supporters, that's unrestricted income, chief execs and trustees are free to use that money as they see fit, including getting it into their reserves for the, the planning and fallback that you're talking about. It's a much harder sell. You're talking about communication with stakeholders, much harder sell with sort of big foundations, for example. Are they going to give you money that's unrestricted so that a charity can stick that into their savings for, for a rainy day? Do you think charities are sort of grappling with that? And do you think they've got a receptive audience in funders? Well, I think funders are much better over the last few years, particularly. I think, you know, I think I said previously that I think funders and foundations have smashed it out of the park during COVID. They really did provide a lot of flexibility, a lot of certainty, but they're also often dealing with the same sort of levels of uncertainty. I mean, you didn't mention inflation there, but actually if a direct debit stays the same, the value of your direct debit today is not going to be the same value in 12, 18 months time. And the same with with foundations, the value of their money and the grants they can give is automatically being reduced by the impact of inflation. So the simple answer is to do they get it is yes, some of them do. Um, And some are being much more open to the notion of providing more money for core costs, which is a way that you can support and help yourself when facing into reserves challenges. But if you think that funders are going to give you a pot of cash to rebuild your reserves, think again. They're not. You know, there's very few, Pesh will know philanthropists' examples through his long career of philanthropists giving money, but they'll give it as an endowment. They're not going to say, here, put this into your reserves and and feel more comfortable. They're, They're just not going to do that. I think there's another point. In addition to sort of funders and foundations and trusts, much of the money for charities comes from the provision of services, contracts for services. Yeah. And uh, there, there is this issue here. Well, much of that contract of services comes from government, but local government, and they're getting squeezed. And we have this situation which causes and has been causing me a lot of unease. Organizations contract for services and they go to private sector organizations and they go to voluntary sector organizations to bid for these services. And if a contract is won by a private sector organization, no one says to them, you have to use all the money to deliver the service. You have to deliver the service and you get paid for it. But with a charity, it's almost like if your costs are in excess, well, that's tough. And if you've not spent all of it, then you have to give some of it back to us. And that doesn't stack up for me. And that's very important when it comes to building up reserves, because if you're always in the position where you have to spend every penny you get, then there's no chance of putting anything into reserves. And actually, charities do use people like volunteers and they use other ways of being able to deliver more 
for less cost. And I think they should be able to use that framework to be able to put something away for a rainy day. And do you have any advice for organizations on how they improve their messaging, both internally and externally, and including to um, funders and potential funders on the importance of reserves and having that flexibility in their what they receive? Yes, I, I think it's very important to be open and not just open with your supporters when you're looking for money, but through the period, keeping them informed, keeping your funders informed, keeping the people who support you informed of what's happening, how you're using their money, but also not trying to sort of fall into what I call sort of the overhead trap of saying that they want to see less spent on overhead, so we have to sort of juggle the figures to make that happen. You have to be open with them and explain to them that it costs money to run an organization. And those costs, you might call overhead costs, support costs, etc., are absolutely necessary. I mean, one of the things that was a real benefit of the pandemic, and when I talk to a lot of charity chief executives and charity finance directors, they say things that would have cost or taken us two or three years to do, we were able to do in two or three months. And that particularly the whole uh, digital infrastructure, working remotely, etc. So there have been some upsides. And being able to talk about that, not always in sort of negative, but looking at sort of value creation in addition to value protection is really quite important. Yeah. Totally agree, Rupesh. What, what sort of landscape are you guys seeing? Are you seeing an increased demand for advice from charities? Are more of them knocking on your door saying we need a bit of a hand here with reserves? Yeah, I, I think the picture is, and, and we're not alone. I think an awful lot of organisations, including infrastructure organisations, are experiencing an increase in demand. And it won't necessarily look like that from the outside because the membership isn't necessarily going up at the same pace. And we're trying to ensure that we're putting more information in front of the paywall rather than behind it, because obviously we're there ultimately to provide charitable services. But we're also organisations in our own right that need to achieve our own sustainability. So we're seeing an awful lot of people clicking on content that is around reserves, around financial management. And the, the demand is there and it's clear every time you speak to a charity they're grappling with the same sorts of issues and volatility. They're trying to square a circle quite often that is really difficult to make right. So that demand is definitely going up. And we're experiencing it ourselves as CFG. We know how difficult it is. You know, we also have had to call on our reserves. And we know that you're in that position of trying to strike a really healthy balance between ensuring you've got enough there to invest in change so that you can continue to provide that support in an increasingly difficult and challenging environment, whilst at the same time, experiencing a squeeze on your own income, and the value of your own investments, etc, reducing, and the demands of the people that you support and employ, understandably going up, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis that we're all experiencing. So yeah, it's, it's a difficult, it's tough out there. And I, I wrote about uh, CFG's accounts, as I'm sure you know, last week, yes. um, which do have some signs of sort of using those reserves just to, to, to get through a sort of slightly rockier patch. Um, but also what the account shows is sort of a very bullish take from you and your colleagues on how to make sure that you're still there providing the services. What does it look like at the moment? We're a few months on from when those accounts, uh, when that accounting period finished. So how, how's 2023 looking? 
we're moving in the right direction. You know, I feel very confident. It's challenging. I'm not going to say that we're out of the woods because I think that everyone is feeling the same levels of pressure. And obviously, we didn't expect to come out of a pandemic straight into a cost of living crisis any more than anyone else did. So, you know, that that is a, a tough thing. But I think that the message I would give, and I think I'm so blessed with a good set of trustees that get this, is that reserves are not there to be protected. You don't make decisions about... Uh, for example, we we had a, a coronavirus business interruption loan and we've repaid most of it, but we could have used the piece that we kept back to simply bring our reserves back within a range and not spent that money. But we held that money back because we need to invest in order to create sustainable income and also to, to ensure that we've got the right set up and services there to deliver support to our beneficiaries. So you have to prioritise not the messaging of it, although I think Presh made some brilliant points about being open and transparent and really sharing what you're doing. You also have to hold your nerve a little bit and recognise that reserves are not there to be protected. The reserves are there to form a function in protecting the delivery of charitable services to your beneficiaries now and in the future. It's a constant balance that you have to strike. And I think it's not only in the UK. Uh, many of the organisations I work with are international. And I think in the UK, we're slightly ahead of the game because for many years, we put into the SORP, uh, the charity SORP, that you had to explain your reserves policy, why you're holding reserves and what your level is, what your target level is. Elsewhere in the world, there was never been that requirement. So many organizations elsewhere are suddenly beginning to think, well, for resilience, for sustainability, we need to have some money in beside. And then I talk to them about reserves policy, and they've never heard about that. So I think we are ahead of the game. The issue we've had, though, is that many UK charities have in the past shaped and articulated their reserves policy to justify the level of reserves they're holding rather than saying, what is the level of reserves that we really need? And now they're beginning to do that. So some of those policies might have had a statement saying that they needed X amount of reserves. And now when they're looking at it, they realize perhaps we don't need X because we have got less and we're managing. So you need to, I think, reframe, revisit your reserves policy. And what about support available for charity management, finance managers who are having to ask those questions and are having to redraft those policies. Is there enough support out there? And what could, for example, the government be doing more of? Well, the Charity Commission has got guidance on reserves. I think uh, the Charity Commission has, for example, over a period of time, moved from one end to the other. So they started off for some years ago saying charities are holding too much reserves. And I, uh, and I was working with a number of charities where they were being challenged on the level of reserves that they were holding. And then after Kids Company, uh, they went to the other way and said almost that you have to have enough reserves for an orderly close down. And I remember writing to them and saying, well, actually, you don't have to think about an orderly close down unless you're thinking about close down. Because if you were having enough reserves for a close down, you would have to be able to pay all your redundancy costs, your future lease payments, etc. And of course, if you're going to be working on a going concern basis, then that income is going to come in in future years to meet that future expenditure. So I think you need to nuance some of these things. And I think particularly organizations like Charity Finance Group, when we have regular meetings on issues such as reserves, such as managing in uncertainty, you know, how do you look at this? How do you consider things like risk velocity? Because what the pandemic did show us is that 
risk velocity, which hasn't been really thought about, is really important. Mm. And what do I mean by risk velocity? I mean the time that it takes between a risk crystallizing and it having a real impact. If you think about the pandemic, the risk crystallized and the impact was immediate. The next day, we couldn't go into our offices, we couldn't work, etc. So you don't have time to plan for that. And therefore, you need to have some reserves to be able to manage those sort of situations. Thank you. All very interesting points. And Karen, to round up the conversation, you're obviously very well placed, both in terms of your expertise and also the position that your organization is in. What tips do you have for other charity managers who are worried about their reserves getting too low or conversely too large for that matter? Yeah, absolutely. Before I say that, though, can I just say that you may know that we came together as a whole range of different organisations, Akivo, NCVO, DSE and others across the pandemic. And that collaboration has continued. So we will see more resources coming out that are between us collaboratively so that we are supporting the sector more broadly, members of CFG and non-members. So so what would be my tips? Well, the first thing I say is there is no perfect one size fits all. So get that out of your mind. There isn't a model that you can just pick up and say, I need to keep three to six months. That's not how it works. So think about your risk profile. Think about what your ideal level of reserves are for right now. And also think about what the reserves level might be ideal for the next three, five years. So do a little bit of sort of future scanning. But be realistic. There is absolutely no point saying we need two million pounds if you're currently on £100,000 and you have absolutely no catch chance in hell of actually getting anywhere near it. It will upset you. It will upset your funders. Explain where your journey to rebuilding your reserves might be and what you need and how you can survive. Because if you've come to a conclusion, of, as Pesh said, that you're operating on a going concern basis, then you absolutely can deal with that level of reserves right now. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a going concern. So be honest and frank and, and realistic about it. So that takes me on to the third one. Be honest, be transparent, communicate realistically what you're doing, whether it is higher or lower. If you don't currently know where the level of reserves should be and you haven't done that process, say it. This is based on the range that we currently have. However, we now need to go through a process of thinking about what our risks are going to be going into the future, because I think that reassures people that you're actively managing your financial position. And the last thing I'd say is don't hardwiring costs that are dealing with short term issues when you don't have a clear path to bringing in income to deal with that. And there may be a temptation, particularly if you've got excess reserves, to say, oh, we'll just use that to, for example, give an inflation matching salary increase. But if you haven't got income that you think is going to be coming in to match that over the years, you are going to cause the organisation to die by a thousand cuts. You need to be thinking about matching your income and expenditure on an ongoing basis, not using your reserves as as a never-never way of funding um, future commitments. So you need to be thinking about that um, and communicate that accordingly to all of your stakeholders in an open, honest and sympathetic way. And Pesh, do you have any top tips to add to that? I would just say don't fudge it. Yeah. You know, don't fudge it in the way you explain things and don't fudge it in the way you analyse things. Don't make things more rosy than they are, but at the same time, don't make them sound worse than they are because very often people think that, well, if we present this picture of really dire circumstances, it means we're going to get some sympathy and our asks are going to be better. So I think that's really quite important. But also, I think it's really important for people to ask yes. and not feel embarrassed 
to say that we've got this funding gap, uh, we've been using our reserves to meet it, and we need to do something about it. You asked about top tips for people that are producing and preparing accounts, but there are also top tips for people reading the accounts. Don't just look at the numbers, look at the narrative. And a set of accounts will never give you all the answers. It will only signpost the questions. So don't make assumptions, dig beneath the surface of it and ask questions. If you think there's too much or too little, seek an explanation. It's also accounts it's worth remembering. They're a snapshot in time as well. Uh, for the most part, they are a a moment that has already passed with all the financial details there, which is a good lesson for us all to remember, I think. Karen Bradshaw, Chief Executive of Charity Finance Group and Pesh Farmacy, Special Advisor to the CFG. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. Now to continue with our new feature on the Third Sector podcast, it's Charity Changed My Life. We bring you the stories of people whose lives have been transformed for the better through the work of charities. This week, we hear from Bobby Bansell, who considers his involvement with Movember to be life-changing for all the right reasons. Hi, I'm Bobby Bansell. Um, I'm 41 years old, and in 2014, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer for the first time. I was diagnosed a second time in 2019, and the difference in the way that I responded to both is huge in terms of how I coped with both diagnoses and a big part of that was down to Movember. Um, I turned to Movember for information, uh, for support. It gave a tutorial on how to check yourself, what to look out for and had I not known what I should be feeling for uh, and what was normal for me, I would almost certainly not have caught the second tumour until it was probably too late and had spread. The way that Movember's changed my life is that it's allowed me to be here to experience milestones that I don't think that I would have had I not been so engaged with them, had they not provided all that information. I'd have missed my nan's 90th birthday, I'd have missed my wedding, I'd have missed my honeymoon, I'd have missed all of the milestones uh, between now and then, uh, three years ago. And yes, an awful lot has happened to the rest of the world, but Selfishly for me, some of the biggest things of my life have happened between then and now. Uh, and I'm so, so grateful that I have had Movember as a source of knowledge and somewhere to seek solace in, I suppose, in terms of how to deal with a lot of these things. That was Bobby Bansell talking about Movember. And if you would like your organisation to be featured in Charity Change My Life, we'd love to hear from you. All it takes is a short voice message from someone who has benefited from your services, submitted to our voice note mailbox. You can find the link to record your message and further guidance in the show notes to this episode. Or you can drop me a line. Details on how to do that are also in the show notes. And we really want to celebrate uplifting stories to remind us why the work of voluntary organisations is so very important. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode. So if you've enjoyed this one, make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast to be the first to know about it. But for now, I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Russell Hargrave. Thank you to our guests, Karen, Pesh and Bobby, and our producer, Nav Pal. Join us again next week. <laughs>